Jesus didn't come for good people. He came for sinners. <laughs> I tell you, anybody that comes into church and says, I'm coming here because I'm good and I'm looking for a good church <laughs> in any place because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Good to be here. My first time in this church on a Sunday. Now, I was here all day yesterday, but my first time on a Sunday. Thank you for the invitation to be here. And uh, I, I do remember long ago, and uh, the reason I got into Sunday school with Pastor Dallas was we had about three or four boys his age, my son being one, and nobody would teach them in Sunday school. And it was like, what do you do with five-year-old boys? You know, everybody that was teaching Sunday school said, <gasps> not me. And so I said, well, I'll do it. And so I ended up with four or five boys on Sunday school. Uh, and uh, we did all kinds of fun things together. You know, part of succeeding in life in ministry is doing what needs to be done. Not always doing what you want to do. Sometimes the greatest success in ministry is finding a need and filling it, even if you say, I'm not qualified. And you know, I've never been qualified for anything I've done. I've qualified myself by doing the work and doing it well. Sometimes people say, I need to learn more before I'm ready. You'll never know enough to succeed. But with God, you can succeed and learn as you go. So I believe that God calls all of us to find a need and fill it wherever we are. And it starts, of course, in our local church. You know how God uses most people? They volunteer. In fact, God's call is often right wrapped up in a volunteer. When you say, I will, I'm ready. Lord, anything you want. I couldn't count the, the altar calls that I, as a teenager and as a young adult, and then when I met my wife, well, we were just friends as it was, um, that we went forward volunteering. I remember walking forward in a church service at 17 or 18 and finding out that Deanie was beside me, meaning she was volunteering too. So when we got married, we just both volunteered to do whatever God wanted us to do with life. That's how God uses people's lives. If you think a thunderbolt from heaven changes everything, what changes everything is when you get willing to do what God wants to do. Suddenly... It's wide open opportunities with what God can do. Can I have an amen out there? Amen. I, uh, I'm a missionary, and I've been one for a very long time. I actually was a missionary when I went to Whitewood because I'm a city boy, and I went to pastor a country church. If you think that's not a missionary. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know anything about farming, and I never milked a cow in my life, but I did after I went to Whitewood. <laughs> and I was out of place. Sometimes you feel out of place. I was out of place there. I've been out of place most of my life. I went overseas, and we lived 31 years in Asia, particularly in the Philippines, and I traveled the countries of Asia. And uh, I tell you, it it, it, it's a journey. It's a journey, a wonderful journey. And after being gone, now I came back all through these years. I did meetings in, in North America regularly, four or five times a year. I was back doing some meetings somewhere by invitation. But really, I kind of lost touch. When I moved back to Canada, I realized I'm going to be a missionary again because I don't have any idea how Canadians think. 
And I had to figure, so I'm still a missionary. I'm trying to figure out what people do here and how they think and why they're so strange, you know? People in Canada are not normal. They don't, they don't act like the people, you know? So I became an Asian in thinking. And by the time I got back here, I realized I got to become a missionary to the people that look like me now. Uh, because I don't think like you think. And so if I say something you don't understand, it's just because I think better than you. I mean, I think different than you do. <laughs> you understand. That's the way it is, you know. Most of us think that our way is better, but only the Lord's way is actually better, you know. And uh, I want to, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about um, what we've done overseas because 30 years you can't cover in a short time. Uh, I'm still... <sighs> I, I'm really not, but I'm still actually uh, leading a church, but I, I, I really am not, a church movement. I mean, for all intents and purposes, when I spend 70% of my time in Canada and 30% of my time in Asia, am I really leading anything there? Not really, you know, not really. But we have a church that we planted, uh, our last church we planted 20 years ago, and, uh, uh, and now that church is actually being led and managed by people that we brought to Christ. In other words, our converts are now the pastors of that church. We have five pastors uh, in leading that church and 65 laymen that have been trained to preach. And not only that, we got five more pastors that are in training and we're planting 25 new churches in Manila alone. There's 20 million people, so there's lots of room. And we're working in another city. So all of that's going on. I really... You know, um, they give me some credit for it, but really I'm not doing anything. I just go there and, you know, kick a little here and there, and everybody jumps, and then it just keeps going without me. And I go there and kick a little, and then when I leave town, they just do what they've been doing, which is pretty good anyway. It's not bad, you know. <laughs> and so, but uh, we thank God for that opportunity. So one day my wife, she was a nurse, never practiced nursing. She quit nursing to, to, for us to marry, and never went back to it, and we ended up in ministry, so she never did any nursing. Uh, we went to the Philippines, and she was invited by some midwives to go assist in a, in a delivery. You know, the poor can't afford medical care, so uh, there were some missionary midwives delivering babies. And so Dini went, and she'd never delivered a baby. And lo and behold, the other midwives had no nursing background. This woman started to hemorrhage, and Dini was the only person there that knew how to give a shot and stop it. And she said, right there in that moment, God said, oh, you better get involved here. And so she took some training, some fairly thorough training, and started delivering babies. And we started delivering babies in our house. Everything you own belongs to Jesus. And I hope you do ministry in your house and in your car and in everything you own. There's nothing you have that doesn't belong to Jesus if you're a Christian. And so we opened our home. And uh, I said to Deanie one day, I'm moving out. I can't sleep. I said, you got a birthing room underneath our bedroom, so you stay up all night and I can't sleep all night. This isn't working. I said, I'm getting another house. She said, well, don't leave me. I said, I have to leave. I can't stay with you any longer. <laughs> and so I rented another house and we had to move the family because the kids would come home from school and there was a mother and baby in every single bed in the house. That's what got birthed that day. And so finally I said, kids, we got to get out of here if we're going to get some sleep. And so she'd say to me, 
listen, I may not be here all the time. Can I teach you how to deliver babies? I said, oh, no, sir. I, I really want, don't want to deliver babies because I believe in responsible knowledge, what you know you're responsible to do something with. So I said, in this area, I'm going to remain ignorant. I don't want to deliver any babies, you know. So anyway, I've been part of quite a few, but I don't want to deliver any. So anyway, we rented another house down the street, and, and our first house became a gentle hands. Then in, and then, as my wife has done all through the years, she rescues me when necessary. So the church was going like crazy. And my Bible school director quit. I said, Dini, you got to come over to the church and run this Bible school. I don't have anybody right now. So she came over and ran the Bible school. And then we got that sorted out. And then uh, I lost my music director. I said, Dini, you got to take over the music. we got to do something here. And so she took over the music and sorted that out. And you know, her first, her first uh, uh, we're a little bit disciplinarians. You know how she whipped the music people uh, in, into shape? We had, she made them on Friday nights, several Friday nights. We had overnight fasting and prayer. They had to pray all night. <laughs> but again, I had to stay up because she brought them into the house and they prayed all night, you see. <laughs> anyway, but I'll tell you, she sorted that out for me and got that fixed up. And, and then uh, counseling became, so then she took over the, anyway. So that's how my good wife, so she won't travel with me anymore because she's not sure what she's going to get into. <laughs> but anyway, so um, then in 2000, she gave the gentle hands to our oldest daughter. Now, you'd never believe it. I got a 50-year-old daughter, eh? I got a 50-year-old, 45-year-old, a 40-year-old. Seems to me there's more than that. A 38-year-old <laughs> and a 13-year-old. Yeah. Someone says, same mother? Yeah. <laughs> but actually, our youngest is a Filipina, and she's just beautiful. But anyway, um, so we're old people with a young daughter. And old kids. So our 50-year-old then took over gentle hands. And her burden was children. And so she gradually turned it into a rescue center for children. And there's nothing like it in Manila. Nothing, nothing like it. We're the only orphanage that takes in the broken, the damaged. We don't have anybody there that's not damaged or broken in some way. Or that wasn't found in a trash can. Or wasn't found on the street or wasn't brought to us by social services because they didn't have any place to put it. I'm not kidding. The guy goes into the Caltex gas station and there's noise and pulls a baby out of the garbage can, still alive, and social services brings it over to us. We're the only place that'll take undocumented children, meaning they don't know who they are, where they came from, they don't have a name, they don't even... So she goes through the process of giving them a name, setting a birth date, declaring them abandoned, and creating all the documentation so they become a legal human being. So that's done lots at Gentle Hands. So I wanted to show you a short video of some of the rescues that take place uh, in the Philippines. We have two centers that she runs. I give her all the credit for what goes on with children. I don't do anything but talk about it a little, but I don't do much. And then when I go there because I'm older and I'm the grandfather, I got kids climbing on me all the time, and I'm the grandfather of the place. And that's kind of the way that is. So that's a little bit about uh, the ministry of gentle hands. Lots of success stories. Lots of kids that come, come from nowhere. And lots of babies die. And there's no place for them to die. They die there. And in my daughter's office, there's a whole wall of urns of children that have died that had nobody 
And there they are, a reminder that somebody loved them, cared for their lives. It is true, everything can't be fixed. Sometimes it's more important who we are than what we do. And that's, that's what Christians are, first of all, called to be something in this world and then do something appropriate in response to who we are. Are you with me? Well, that's Gentle Hands. Pray for that ministry. And uh, we raise about $50,000 a month to make that work. But we got almost 200 children and 40 staff. And it's a big deal. It's a big deal. I brought a few of our books along because I always push reading. I find that a lot of people don't read. And if you're, not, if you're only reading Facebook, your mind is deteriorating. You need a little more than that. <laughs> you need a little more than that. So um, when I started ministry, I didn't know much, so I realized I had to learn, and I've never quit reading. I have a little book here called Doorway to the Supernatural. It's a book about the Holy Spirit, and it's in five languages. And uh, I got some at the back, uh, a good book. You know um, how you can pick up your reading a little bit? Read one chapter in a good book every day, and you'll read 20 books a year. That's all it takes, one chapter a day, Every day, you can read 20 books a year. I think we should read good books. Well, here's my wife's book. This came as a result of some of her counseling. It's called No More Shame. And it says, The Purity of Sex Restored. Now, my, by the way, it's not an X-rated book. Every teenager's got to read this book. My daughter read it. She said, Dad, that's a good book. But what it deals with is that sexual wounding often is the cause of much of life's problems later in life. It's a healing book and something we've had a very strong healing ministry in the Philippines for years. Here's a book called So You Want to Be a Missionary. It's the story of our first numbers of years and a lot of the stuff that happened. I remember one time we were, man, we were there through all the coup attempts. I remember when they were, when they were bombing the military base and missed and bombed the house neck close to us instead, you know. <laughs> or our kids just loved it, you know. And, uh, I mean, it's not every day you can live in a house where they're dropping bombs just a few houses away, you know. <laughs> we, got, we got locked in the house for over a week while the coup was going on. And uh, we had a little meat in the freezer, and the neighbor had some rice, so we joined forces and ate rice and meat for a week. But... Uh, one time we were up at uh, north of the city, and my boys went for a walk, and lo and behold, the NPA, the communists, they got into a firefight with the Philippine military, and my boys were in the middle, and they were shooting across the street, and the boys, they're standing there wanting to watch the gunfire. I said, guys, get down, get down, you know. No, they wanted to see the shooting, you know, hey. Anyway, thank God they're still alive, both of them, that sort of thing. This has got a lot of stuff that really helps you. Here's a book by my daughter on some of the stories of children called Children of the Shadows. And I got them. I got some other books there, too, that are good. And uh, they're $12 each or four for 40. Pick any four books. And uh, I'd like you to buy some books, give you something to read, inform you, help you, build you, grow you, be good for your life. So I got some books back there that I'll talk to you about. And I think maybe that's about all the talking I should do because... I'm supposed to. I'm a little bit tight here, I see. Okay. All right. So if I fall backwards, just ignore it. I'll get up. But uh, we spent a good day together yesterday with a number of folks here and did a little uh, 
did a little teaching and study together. And uh, today I want to share a word with you from uh, the book of Acts chapter 9. And uh, if you've got a Bible, would you turn there? And I'm going to go through this chapter, and uh, I've given it a title. of called Before There Was a Problem, There Was a Possibility. Before There Was a Problem, There Was a Possibility. And uh, Acts chapter 9 starts with, it, 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 it is the, the account of the conversion of Saul when he came to Christ. And uh, we want to go through this a little bit and see how this applies to our lives. Are you with me this morning? Well, here's a question. Can God really use my life? Now, you see, your life is literally loaded with potential, yet potential always comes with problems. And when you are stopped by the problems, you will miss your potential. Now, God's will for you is full of possibility. But those possibilities come with problems. Acts chapter 9, a change has come. Up to now... It's been the religious leadership that has been persecuting the followers of Jesus. And now the crowd becomes involved. The resistance, the persecution, the actual assault on believers is escalating in chapter 9. Here's the way it starts. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogue at Damascus, so if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, persecution has become organized, planned, and well executed. But it's not new. Persecution has always followed the righteous. When you choose to stand as a follower of Christ, you will be persecuted at one point or another. In fact, Timothy wrote, everyone who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We've lived in a wonderful time of peace and religious freedom in the West, not realizing that the Bible promises that one who truly identifies with Christ will, whether systematically, whether permanently, whether all of the time, whether part-time, or whether occasionally, will suffer persecution. How many like persecution today? No hands went up. Your possibilities will always be coupled with problems. In the New Testament alone, the following individuals were persecuted. John the Baptist, James, Simon, the disciples, Lazarus. He got persecuted after being raised from the dead. So if he couldn't get away with it, you don't have much chance. (laughs) You don't understand what I mean. All right. And of course... There was the apostles, Stephen, in fact, the entire church family, Timothy, John, Antipas, the whole church at Smyrna. These are just the names that are mentioned, yet thousands are implied in the organized persecution of the New Testament church. But it's on today all over the world. As the world system decays, 
the obvious uniqueness of the people of God will draw attention to us and bring greater persecution to the people of God. Someone says, that don't sound very positive. Yes, it is very positive. According to Open Doors, every month, 255 Christians are killed. 104 are abducted. 180 Christian women are raped or harassed or forced into marriage every month. 66 churches are attacked. 160 Christians are detained without trial and imprisoned. 215 million Christians experience high levels of persecution in countries on the world watch list. This represents 1 in 12 Christians today live under persecution. So it's on. And this is every month. Now, here's what it says. Breathing threats and murders. This phrase in the Greek describes passion, misguided passion. In Greek, it is actually the opposite of breathing in. It, it means that Saul literally created a, an atmosphere around him. It was, like, it was like everywhere he went, he was so impassioned with his hatred toward the people of God. I mean, everybody around could feel the hate coming off his life for those who were following Christ. It's a picture of a man so full of anger and hate that every breath is like a threat. Saul, who is the Hebrew form of Paul, is, the, is first found two chapters before in Acts chapter 7 at the death of Stephen. The crowd was so incensed at the testimony of Stephen that in rage they dragged Stephen out of the city and stoned him. And the stoners laid their robes down at Saul's feet. He stood and watched till the last breath was driven out of Stephen. It says in chapter 8 and 1 that Saul was in hearty agreement in putting him to death. Could God love a man like that? But he did. But he did. He stood there. He watched. He cheered them on. Throw another one. Get another one. Hit him again. Come on now. Get another. Get a bigger stone. Hit him again. And there he stood until the very last breath of Stephen was driven out. Then success. One more blasphemer was dead. He had arrested many, voted for the death of others, worked tirelessly at persecution. You could actually say that Saul worked harder at persecution than most of us do at representing Christ. Are you with me? Who is winning when the fear of persecution silences the mouths of God's people? What makes a man so hateful and angry? Stephen called a deacon, a servant of Christ and the church, his last words. Stephen says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then a, with a loud voice, he said, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Lord, forgive them as life is leaving him. There's no room in the heart of God for revenge, nor can revenge remain in the heart of the follower of Christ. For Jesus said the same things from the cross forgive them for they know not what they do Jesus promised persecution now I I bring this out today because there's a reason for it 
You know, I, I came back to Canada, even though I visited here often, I came back to Canada realizing that Canada had changed, that we become so much more liberal. I'm not talking politics. But we become much more liberal in thinking. We've come to a place in Western society where intolerance is the greatest sin that you can commit. We live in a society where if you are intolerant, if you are not embracing the diversity of our culture, there's something wrong with you. So it doesn't matter whether it is sin, whether it is perversion, whether it is a position that the Bible is... If you do not embrace all that is present, somehow you are the one that is at fault. I came back... To Canada and I had not realized how far culture had shifted and I had not realized how conservative Christians had become not conservative in faith but conservative in conversation not wanting to be identified as a Christian many becoming more silent than they've ever been before because of the concern that someone will not appreciate the fact that they do not embrace all of the diversity of society What's happened to us? What's happened to us? Now, I experienced it very briefly as a young man. All who will live godly will suffer some persecution. That's always been. You know, um, I was raised in church. I'm thankful for that. Pastor Dallas is thankful for being raised in church. So am I. I'm so thankful for that. I tell you, I, I don't have any complaints about church. I mean, I've seen everything that you can imagine. I've seen some funny Christians. I've seen some sober Christians. I've seen some legalistic Christians. I've seen some Christians that have more grace than I can handle. I've seen folks that live this way, live that way. Uh, I've also been under the influence of some very godly people in my life. There are church members that impacted my life as a child. You know, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for all of that. But one thing it did, even as a child, it got a hold of my life that I had to live for Jesus. And my uncle, you know, my uncle, he... He had been a drunkard. He was, I mean, he got saved when he was about 40, 35, 40 years of age, and he'd been drunk all the time. And when he came to Jesus, he turned into somebody that was truly fired up for Jesus. And he's a big guy. I'm a little guy. He's six foot two and 300 pounds. Big guy. And you know, he was a big uncle to me. When he went to buy a pair of coveralls, he had a trucking business. He went to the Hudson Bay Company, and they said, listen, anything that big, you got to go to a tent-making company for something like that. I mean, they didn't have his size. He was a big, big guy. But, you know, he was my hero, so he, he, uh, I went to church, and, and, he, and I sat beside him. And then he would ask me every week, did you tell somebody about Jesus this week? I'm about 8, 10 years old. Then next week he brought me a box of tracks, said, you need to pass these out and let people know Jesus. He led all of my cousins to Christ. Who have you led to Christ? And he put it into my heart. So I, I went to one of the roughest schools in Winnipeg. It was rough. I mean, every lunchtime there were fist fights outside. I mean, the teach, it was just violent and, and wicked. Like you, I mean, and I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. You know, I didn't have a lot of friends because I didn't fist fight. I didn't have a lot of friends because I didn't curse. I didn't have a lot of friends. I didn't. And you know, I got concerned about being dumbed down. And you know, the best, the best defense is a good offense. 
And I said, you know what, Lord? I don't want to lose my faith in this ungodly environment. So I got myself a New Testament that fit in my shirt pocket. And by the time I went to high school, I carried a New Testament every day. I had it in my shirt pocket. And people would ask me, what is that? I said, it's a Bible. You know, so I got all that stuff. I brought it on myself. But here's what happened. When people got in trouble, who do you think they came to and said, what do I do about this? Me. Me. So that launched me. That launched my life. Launched my life. Folks, don't let, don't let the mode, the mood of modern society create a Christian that you don't want to be. Don't let your workplace, your school, your environment tell you how you should live. Don't let the intolerant society of our time keep you from boldly expressing that Jesus still is the way, the truth, and the life. Listen, I've been in this my whole life. I have no regrets. I have lost nothing in serving Jesus Christ. I have gained a family worldwide of men and women that everywhere I go love the same Jesus. We share the same destination. And I don't live a life of regrets. And I don't look back with a life saying, I wish I had not, I wish I had not, I wish I had not, but I live this day saying I'm so glad that I made a commitment to Christ and I've lived out that commitment in my life, in my workplace, in my school, and wherever I have been. If you don't want a life of regrets, you'll have to make some decisions that change the way you live today. Regrets come after the fact. They come based on decisions you've made today, determines whether or not you'll have regrets later on in life. I don't have regrets today. I live with great joy knowing that after all this time, it doesn't get old. Ha, it still works. It still changes lives. It's still the only way to go. Hallelujah. Jesus is not one of many options. He is the way and the truth and the life. Can I have an amen today, huh? Saul doesn't hear the words of Stephen. Nor the spirit of Stephen. He can't drop. He cannot stop. He's a driven man. Driven by misguided sincerity. He, like many before and many after, have been sincerely wrong. But Saul asked the high priest for papers, extradition papers, papers that will authorize him to arrest Jews who confess Jesus the Messiah, these belonging to the way, then he will bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. Now, this is an extreme measure, but extreme actions have always been taken by the Jerusalem leaders to crush this movement. The way, what a name for a movement or church. It doesn't sound very churchy doesn't sound very threatening yet it's full of meaning based on Jesus own words I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father but by me to repeat those words the words of Jesus will pronounce judgment on every religion around you one does not have to criticize other faiths but to speak the words of Christ is a judgment on this world it is to declare there's a narrow road. 
It is to say that not all roads lead to God. It is to say that sincerity of religion is not enough. Just like church attendance is not enough. It is to say that Jesus is the only way. He is the only truth and the only life. It was and is today and always will be offensive to quote Christ. It has, it does, it always will bring persecution. To quote Jesus is to be controversial. To declare that Jesus is Lord, not just a Lord. When I preach in India, if I talk and say, you know, Jesus loves you, bring your life to Jesus, everybody will come. I mean, they don't mind. They already have a hundred million gods. One more won't matter. But to say that to come to Jesus, you must forsake all your other gods is a whole different story. You can go to some of those countries and preach Christ. And you know, you can have thousands lift their hands. I don't take pictures of that. It's not worth my time. You got to wait till the water baptism the next day before you find out who really wants to commit their life to Christ. Well, you know, can I add Jesus to what I'm already doing? But to say Jesus is Lord, the Lord of your life, <clears throat> pronounces judgment on everyone around you, not because you pronounce the judgment, but your life stands as a judgment because what Christ has done in you. It's a life, a lifestyle with Jesus as the object, the Lord. And that is Christian faith. And it is controversial. It is controversial. Are you with me this morning? Paul approached the high priest. Who was this high priest? His name was Caiaphas, the one and same who stood over the proceedings of Jesus' trial, accusing him of blasphemy, the one who warned Peter and John to stop preaching. He's got a history of hating the followers of Jesus. Given his history, I'm sure, when he found this zealot named Saul, that he was more than happy to issue the orders to, ch to chase those heretics down, bring them back, charge them with blasphemy, execute them, clean up the faith before this gets out of hand. There's nothing so cruel as religious zeal. Well, Saul is off to Damascus. Damascus, Damascus had a large Jewish population. Josephus estimates there were 40,000 Jews living in Damascus, Syria. Over 30 synagogues were there. And when the Jews later rebelled against Rome, it was estimated 15,000 Jews were killed. There was a big population there. And this gives you some idea how many Jews were there and why Paul or Saul thought this is a good place to go to put a stop to what's happening. Tells us in verse 3, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. It was blinding, overwhelming. One could not walk, turn away, or see. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, he asked, who are you, Lord? The voice replied, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. When he said, who are you, Lord? It doesn't mean Lord in the sense, Lord Jesus. It is a term of respect. It would be like saying, who are you, sir? I don't know who this is, but who are you? He had no idea this was Jesus. He had no idea. He heard a voice, so he just said, who are you, sir? Who are you? And the voice responded, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
When you lift your voice to attack, listen to me, when you lift your voice to attack or criticize any follower of Jesus, are you not persecuting Jesus himself? Christians ought not to say a bad word about another Christian, no matter what they've done to you. Let Jesus deal with them. That struck me so clearly as I realized that Jesus himself spoke to Saul and said, you're persecuting me, not the people. Then get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. Well, the men who were traveling with them stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. You can't imagine all these guys, you know, they are going, they're on a trip. I mean, they're really motivated. Bang, the light comes on. And the voice starts talking. And then Saul, I mean, this is a dramatic moment. This was not just something that was lighthearted. This was not some little message. Oh, by the way, Paul or Saul, uh, you're troubling the church. Could I have your attention, please? You know? It was a boom. It was a boom moment when Jesus appears and all that were with him were absolutely started. Not only did he hear, but for a moment he saw Christ. That, that's what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says he appeared to James and the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul saw something there. Saul saw something. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him to Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. What a contrast. The leader is now being led. And what a time of soul searching. Imagine the thoughts of Saul's head. Not only did he know what happened. Not only did he know what was going on. How far was he from Damascus? I don't know. But he's got to go not seeing. They brought him. I mean, can you imagine the torment of one's mind? knowing that he's had some supernatural encounter but doesn't understand what has happened here. I mean, he ends up in Damascus and there for three days and three nights. Jesus did not tell him, you will be blind three days and three nights. Jesus did not say there is no record of God speaking to him and letting him know what's going on. Now, just to inform you, Saul, I'm Jesus. I've scheduled you for three days of blindness. And uh, you'll please cooperate and just stay in the house until further instructions are given. Nothing like that seems to be recorded. It seems to be that out of nowhere he is left to his own thoughts and his own soul. And what anguish would be in his heart of sitting in that place. And it would be a place of darkness. He'd never been in darkness before. He had no appetite. It would be alarming. You'd lose your appetite too in a case like that. He didn't even want anything to drink. He just sat there without food or drink, sitting in a stupor, going it over, going over the, the, the situation in his mind. I'm persecuting Jesus. That's what he said. But how can this be? He's dead. He's dead. How can this be? He's definitely dead. I'm losing my mind. Yet... I can't be losing my mind because I'm blind. 
I mean, this is not an imagination. I'm really blind. I cannot see. So I can't be losing my mind. I've just lost my eyesight, but I can't understand what's going on. And so there, Saul sits in this room. This was real. This voice, this person was really Jesus, whom he knew had been crucified. He sits in darkness, disturbed, reflective, worried. How many days will I be here? Paul was so grateful for that moment, as he says in 1 Timothy 1. But a sobering question for you today. Who prayed for Saul? Who prayed for Saul? You see, someone did. No one comes to Christ without someone praying for them. Now, maybe, maybe you may call someone's name under the burden of the Holy Spirit. You may pray in the Holy Spirit and be praying for someone you do not know, but no one comes to Christ without someone calling their name, sometimes by calling their name intentionally and sometimes by the Holy Spirit praying through you and you are praying for someone you do not even know who you are praying for. John Wesley called his followers to pray for people because he said without that prayer they will not come to Christ. Well, whom do you pray for? Who prayed for you that you are here today? Jim Simbala, the pastor of that great Brooklyn church, Brooklyn Tabernacle, what a great soul-winning church in the heart of New York. He told his congregation that if they would call upon the Lord, he had promised in his word to answer and bring the unsaved to himself and to pour out his spirit among them. But he said, if you do not call upon the Lord, he's promised you nothing. He's built a church over the years that has been bent on calling upon God for the people of his city, calling upon God for people to be saved. Got one of the greatest soul winning churches in America today. This gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all the world as a witness. Nothing will stop the advancement of the church. Not even Saul can do that with letters from the chief priests. The persecuted church still spread like pouring oil on water. Now, we introduce another character in this story. His name is Ananias. We don't know much about this guy. He's hardly mentioned in the book of Acts. He's a believer, not an apostle. I want you to understand that. He's somebody just like you, someone just like one of us here today. He's a sincere believer who's followed Jesus. He has his own doubts about stuff. Put yourself in his sandals. I mean, he's having prayer. Saul is in town. Everybody knows who Saul is. He's one of the wickedest men in, in, in the region at the time. People are dying because of this man. And that believer, Ananias, could be you. His hands could be your hands. Ananias' voice could be your voice. Can you see the potential problem with this opportunity? Not much is said about this Ananias. Only two times before is he mentioned. But he seems to have been well respected. Maybe his single purpose in life was to lay his hands on Saul and pray for him. 
Obedience must be the goal of every believer, not fame. And that's never the objective. To obey Christ in the smallest task is to be famous in heaven. Here's why we are so timid and fearful. Sometimes there is no eternity in our hearts. We're consumed with bringing Christ into our life, helping us. We get saved for what Christ can do for us. However, when eternity gets into our heart, when heaven becomes our home, when the kingdom becomes our purpose, when Jesus is really Lord, something changes and my life is for Christ and for Christ I will live. Are you there? How did God speak to Ananias? Did you ever ask that question? It doesn't suggest there was a voice from heaven. It doesn't suggest that he had a vision. It doesn't suggest that anything truly profound or supernatural happened. Now, it says, it, it seems to me the way it is written that Ananias heard the Lord speak much the way we do. Sometimes the Lord speaks to our life by just putting a little, like a little impression upon our life. Like, you know, you should do that. You should or giving you a little burden for someone, or sometimes a thought that comes out of nowhere that you say, whoa, what's that? Because Ananias had doubts. He didn't, yes, sir, Lord, okay, Lord, I'm going. I'm heading out there right now. No, as you read the passage, you find that Ananias is not sure. Because Ananias resisted. He was not 100% sure, but the burden persisted. You know, if God puts a burden on your heart and that burden won't go away, you be sure one thing, God's trying to talk to your life. Don't resist the burdens God puts on you. A burden for good and for righteousness and for others is a God-given burden that God puts on your life. I think many an opportunity has been missed because the Holy Spirit has tried to push our life like he did Ananias. And he calls. Well, Ananias wasn't sure. Listen, there's no one too far for God to reach. Can you say amen? There's no one too hardened by ideology or filled with hate that cannot be captivated by Christ. I've told my churches all through the years, go find me the worst of the worst, for there we will see the greatest miracles. <laughs> Jesus didn't come for good people. He came for sinners. <laughs> I tell you, anybody that comes into church and says, I'm coming here because I'm good and I'm looking for a good church <laughs> in any place because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, the lost, the people that don't. I mean, there isn't anyone that God can't transform over the years. I've seen the worst of the worst become some of the best of the best. <laughs> I've seen people that didn't have any future have a great future because of Christ. Well, you see, even though Ananias may have struggled with this, not been sure what to do, he finally agreed. He finally agreed to go. You know, reaching the unreached, the seemingly unreachable, that's God's agenda. Never give up on a soul. To quote Winston Churchill, never, never, never give up. If anyone should be determined to never give up, it should be the people of God who are filled with the Holy Spirit, have the Word of God at their disposal, and the hope of God in their heart. There's never, ever a reason to give up on anyone. We can use that phrase to express determination, but why not use it to express faith? Never, never give up on proclaiming 
Christ. Well, how do you describe the kindness of God? Notice, notice how God sees people. Ananias says, I can't go there. This guy's killing people. Holy Spirit, is this a trap? Are you sending me there? And then he's going to kill me? But it won't leave. So he has to walk. He has to walk down the street, search out this Saul. He's got to go to the house. Well, the Lord's speaking, but yikes. Well, Lord, I'm going, but yikes. Lord, is the guy got a gun? He didn't have a gun back then. Is the guy got a dagger? Maybe he's got people. All those doubts, if you've ever had doubts, welcome to the human race. But you see, we don't live our life by doubts. Sometimes you have to step on your doubts or doubt your doubts, but never doubt God. He went over there, and as he's, as he's talking to the Lord about it, here's what I want you to hear. The Lord says to him, he said, this is a chosen vessel for me. Chosen vessel. Chosen vessel. <laughs> that neat? That's neat. Listen, the problem has potential. Let me tell you what I get from this chapter. And I, I think I've gone a little bit long this morning. I'm sorry. I'll leave town later. You can take it out on the pastor next week. This chapter teaches us some very clear things that problems are always mixed with possibilities. And where your life ends up depends which you're looking at. Whether you're looking at what's wrong or what could be makes all the difference on what you will become. Number two, persecution is a normal part of a normal Christian life. I want to say to you, I do believe that we're coming to more difficult times. But you know what? That should not cause any alarm or concern. Because we know that if God is for us, we are an overcoming people. Amen? Number three, I see that no one is beyond the reach of the Holy Spirit, the worst of the worst. The murderer of followers of Christ was saved. That guy wouldn't stand a chance in most of our churches today. He came in the door. Who would say, ah, <laughs> let's get this? We'd say, whoa, this guy's too far gone, you know. Hey. Number four, no one is saved by any other means except a personal encounter with Christ. Five, everyone must follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And everyone has a greater purpose beyond your earthly identity. So today, are you saved? Have you really let Jesus be the Lord of your life? You can come to church for months and years and I've never really made a decision to make Jesus Lord. That means boss of your life.
Are you saved enough to be unashamed of Jesus? Is it clear enough to you that you'd stand for him? But if it goes beyond that, I think of a story. Pastor Chong told this story. There was an old elder in the church, and he came to prayer meetings, and every time he was asked to pray, somewhere in his prayer, <clears throat> he would say these words every time. He would say, oh, God, touch the unsaved with your finger. It was, it was all the time. He said it all the time. He prayed it in every prayer meeting. Oh, God, touch the unsaved with your finger. And then one night in prayer meeting, he started to pray, and he came, and all of a sudden, he just said, Oh, God, touch the unsaved with your finger, and then went quiet, never said a word, just stood there. They thought he'd had a stroke. They thought something had gone wrong with him. He just stood there. He just stood there. Finally, someone went over and tapped him, said, Brother, are you okay? He said, Yeah. He said, when I said those words, something spoke to me and said, you are that finger. I say to you this morning, you are God's finger in this city. You are God's chosen vessel in this city. Are you with me this morning? Today, are you really committed to Christ? Sometimes, I told you I have no regrets. I didn't say I have no problems. But I didn't come here to talk to you about my problems. I talk about my problems to Jesus. And I talk about Jesus to people. If you talk a little bit less about your problems to people and talk to God more about your problems and start talking more to people about Jesus, we'd have a different environment around our lives. If you're oriented to problems, you'll always be discouraged and knocked down. If you're oriented toward Christ, <laughs> you're on a ride <laughs> that's going up. <laughs> and it's getting better. <laughs> Hallelujah. You know, I I've been I've been traveling and preaching 46 years and I'm just, I'm realizing I don't have another 46 years to go. I tell you it's the most dis that is discouraging to me. This is such a good ride. I don't want it to end. Some people say, "Oh Lord, would you come?" I'm not in any hurry for Jesus to come, and I'm not praying for him to come quickly. You know why? There's too many people that I want to drag with me to heaven to want to go to heaven today oh Lord would you come and get us out of this mess I say oh Jesus would you come and give me power to sort out this mess before there was a problem there was a possibility would you stand with me this morning I want to pray together Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Listen, before you ever had a problem, God saw a possibility in your life and still sees it. Maybe you've been overcome by personal problems in your life. 
Don't ever let it cloud the fact that God has vision for you. If you catch God's vision for your life, <laughs> something different going to happen to you. Your life is not defined by your problems. Your life is defined by your faith. Your life is not defined by what's wrong. Your life is defined by what's right. And if Christ is in you, there's an awful lot that's right about your life. We want to pray that God will turn us into his finger in this city. Are you with me today? Oh, Jesus, touch the unsaved with your finger. Lord, let that finger be me. Can you say that with me? Oh, Jesus, touch the unsaved with your finger. Oh, Jesus, let that finger be me. Jesus, Jesus. Holy Spirit, move, I pray. Thank you, Jesus. Until assurance comes to our life, we need Jesus. Listen, I'm going to stop there. Your stomachs may be growling. But let Jesus use your life. Thanks, Pastor.